This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at Ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. I'm Jesse Dukes, audio producer for Curious City. And the story I'm about to tell has frank descriptions of racism, anti-Semitism, and violence. Quick warning, some of the audio includes an especially offensive racist slur. This story is about a neighborhood. So we'll start there. Hello. Got a very pleasant good morning, young person. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning to you. Morning, Thank you for making the time. It's gotten a little shabbier over the years. Yeah, same building though, right? Same building. Uh, we're on uh, West 71st Street in the Marquette Park area. And what are we looking at right now? We're looking at a building that's uh, a little worse for wear. The windows are broken out now and boarded up from the inside. It was the headquarters of the National Socialist White People's Party, uh, better known as the Chicago Nazis. This is Larry Langford. He's now a spokesperson for the Chicago Fire Department, but in the 1970s, he was a radio reporter. And he says, as a black man reporting on this building in this neighborhood, that was challenging. What do you, how do you remember it looking in the 1970s? Well, then you had a lot of uh, you had posters. Uh, you had a very nasty sign that was that was actually on the brick wall facing the west, and I believe it said, "Beware, niggers." What was Market Park's reputation at the time? It was a place that black folks didn't go. You didn't get near it. If you drove down 71st Street or Marquette Road, you kept driving. I knew some guys that came over to Marquette Park, and they were they were coming over here sort of, ah, oh, that's not true, it doesn't happen, we're just going to go over there and shoot some basketball. They never got to shoot any basketball. And they didn't come out with the basketball either. It was taken away from them, they were beaten. Chicago Nazis, a racist neighborhood. That brings us to our question. It comes from Alex Ann Shaw, and it's based on something a former roommate who grew up in Chicago told her years ago. He told me that there was once a Nazi neighborhood in Chicago, and I wanted to know, is that true? And if so, what was the history of it? Alex has been thinking about this question lately because of current events. The emergence of the so-called alt-right, for example, or vandalized synagogues right here in Chicago. The issue of hate groups and their relationship with the communities around them feels timely. As you heard from Larry Langford, there was a group of neo-Nazis headquartered in Marquette Park in the 70s. And this group in Chicago, for a few years, was more successful at getting attention than any other American Nazi group. They were even satirized in the Blues Brothers. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. So why did these neo-Nazis get so much attention? And what was their relationship to their home neighborhood, Marquette Park? 
To answer that, let's step away from Chicago and start with George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder of the neo-Nazi movement in the United States. In the 1960s, Rockwell was desperate to spread his message. What we are out to exterminate is traitors to this country. The white race isn't going to tolerate any more treason and race fixing in this country. Rockwell invented American neo-Nazism. He denied the Holocaust happened, said black people were an inferior race, said communism was a Jewish plot, and desegregation, that was also a Jewish plot. The lawyer that's putting all these Negroes into the southern colleges and universities is Jake Greenberg, a Brooklyn Jew, another one with a communist record. Rockwell's group dressed in Nazi uniforms, marched with swastika flags, often on the Washington Mall in D.C. And, as has happened over and over in history, they challenged America's commitment to free speech rights. Some localities tried to shut down their speeches and marches. But according to Mark Potok at the Southern Poverty Law Center, Rockwell's neo-Nazis were largely ignored. By and large, they were seen as a kind of freak, marginal phenomenon in American society. They weren't taken seriously at all. Uh, And in fact, very large numbers uh, of newspapers and television stations uh, agreed to simply not cover them. Uh, They were lobbied by a number of different Jewish organizations at the time. According to Potok, this strategy, called the media quarantine, infuriated Rockwell. He wanted to be taken seriously, wanted neo-Nazism to be a mainstream political party. So he struggled to get attention any way he could. You know, this is in the era of hippies and love buses and people painted up with psychedelic colors and so on. Rockwell's response to that was to initiate a national tour with not a love bus, uh, as the hippies were saying, uh, but what he called a hate bus, a VW bus uh, with swastikas painted all over it and slogans about uh, hating non-whites and so on. Rockwell's quest for attention drew him to Chicago in 1966. That year, Martin Luther King organized a series of marches in the southwest side to protest housing segregation. In Marquette Park, local white people rioted, rushing the marchers, throwing bricks and bottles. King was hit on the back of his head. Oh, I've been hit so many times, I'm immune to it. (laughs) Rockwell must have read about this in the papers and thought, Marquette Park sounds like my kind of place. Because within two weeks, he was in Chicago handing out brochures and calling desegregation a Jewish plot to weaken the white race. It was the beginning of the Nazi relationship to Marquette Park. Rockwell organized a so-called White People's March in Chicago's southwest side. More than 100 people from the area joined him with white T-shirts that read, White Power. The march was written up in the New York Times. This was arguably Rockwell's biggest mainstream success. And it didn't happen in the Deep South. It happened on the southwest side of Chicago. Rockwell was assassinated within a year, and his neo-Nazis struggled for attention without their flamboyant leader. But they had made an impression on Chicago and on a man named Frank Collin. You really think that you can pull off a white America in your lifetime? Absolutely. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be wasting my time. What are you going to do with all those people? Well, if we can send white men to the moon, I'm sure we can send the niggers back to Africa. That's Collin. He was originally from Chicago and was one of Rockwell's followers in the 1960s. In 1970, three years after Rockwell was assassinated, Collins set up a Chicago neo-Nazi headquarters in Marquette Park. It was just a few blocks away from the site where somebody threw an object that hit Martin Luther King. Collin called his building Rockwell Hall. He had a revolving crew of one or two dozen recruits live with him in the building, which he called a barracks. They 
had uh, you know sleeping bags and couches and it was just a CD upstairs. J. Ross Bauman is a journalist who had unusual access to Rockwell Hall. He went undercover with the neo-Nazis in the 70s, and he says the so-called barracks seemed more like a boys' club. Uh, they didn't have a lot of leisure time comfort. In fact, I don't even really recall if they had a working television set. They would listen to speeches that Frank had given, that he had recorded on audio tape. That was a favorite pastime. But mostly what they were doing was planning for, you know, how are we going to have a smoother operation next time we make a, you know, a rally in the park. So this is why our questioner Alex heard there was a Nazi neighborhood. In the early 1970s, they stuck to the southwest side in nearby white-only suburbs like Cicero and Berwyn. They would hand out white power t-shirts and newspapers. White power newspaper right here! And they tapped into fears about integration. Stick together, white people. Keep them from ruining our community. You know what we mean. And just like Rockwell, the original neo-Nazi, their goal was to become a mainstream political movement. But in the early 70s, Collins' group was no more than a curiosity. The papers sometimes ridiculed them, but mostly ignored them. Buzz Alpert felt they should not be ignored. I beat Frank Collins into unconsciousness twice, and I will never forget the second time. I knocked him out and had him on the ground, and I kicked him a couple times. Alpert was the chair of the Illinois chapter of the Jewish Defense League, a group that opposed anti-Semitism. He led the JDL to a Nazi march in Berwyn, and he says he barred the Nazis' way on the sidewalk. And I remember taking Frank Collin as assistant. He walked up to me and he said, who are you? And I said, JDL. And I just reached out, took the two of them by the throat, and dove at them, knocked them both out. And we had one hell of a fight. We were outnumbered two to one. We licked the streets up with them. And the Nazis were stunned that they had been beaten by Jews. Stunned. Couldn't believe it. This is Buzz Alpert's side of the story, and I can't verify every detail, but film footage shows fights did happen, with Alpert in the middle, punching, kicking, grappling. The only thing that hateful people understand is to beat the living hell out of them. I felt it had to be met force with force. And I watched and I noticed that some of the Nazis, after taking terrible beatings, didn't come back. It was no longer fun to march around in a Halloween costume with little mustaches and all the crap, you know, the haircuts that look like Hitler. Oh my God, how stupid. Uh, that they didn't come back. It was, it was painful to get beaten. I can't confirm any Nazis quit because of the fighting. They may have. But in one film, a fight lasts only a few seconds before the police break it up. You can see Frank Collin, a short, pudgy guy with black hair and a floppy part. He's bleeding from his nose, bleeding from the back of his head, but it looks like he's enjoying the attention. Find it behind me! Hector! And that's how it went for years. The neo-Nazis hold a march. The JDL shows up. They scuffle. The police break it up. If Colin was lucky, he'd make page two of the local papers. But in 1977, Colin, maybe by accident, found a way to get a lot more attention. That year, the city of Chicago passed a law making it almost impossible to get a permit to march in public parks. So Colin applied for permits to demonstrate in several Chicago suburbs, including the village of Skokie. 
This was a big deal because Skokie had thousands of Holocaust survivors as residents. Imagine if you had survived a death camp in Europe, made a home in the U.S., and 30 years later, men in Nazi uniforms wanted to march through your town. This is from an interview with a Holocaust survivor identified as D. Stern. It is not easy as a survivor to relive it. It's terrible pain. Just like my heart would be crying. Out of respect for the survivors, Skokie denied Colin his permit. But Colin saw a chance to get more attention. He complained his free speech rights were being violated and went to the American Civil Liberties Union to file a lawsuit. At the time, David Goldberger was legal director for the Illinois chapter. Was it uncomfortable when he first showed up? Um, Of course. It was um, not something anyone looked forward to. Uncomfortable might be an understatement here. Goldberger is Jewish and definitely opposed to racism. And he's talking to a neo-Nazi, a man who routinely used the most offensive racial slurs, a man who once referred to Jews as, quote, the most obnoxious, insane people in the world. And this neo-Nazi was asking Goldberger and the ACLU to help him while he terrorized the Jewish community. And Goldberger decided to do it. The ACLU's position was that the First Amendment applies equally to everybody, no matter their ideology, so long as they play by the rules of the game. Goldberger's decision to represent neo-Nazis was unpopular, to say the least. In fact, Buzz Alpert, that guy from the JDL you heard fighting Nazis, he's not over it. I like to beat his face. To this day? To this day. I have never lost the ardor of a Jewish guy defending a Nazi. The anger that I felt for him. To me, Goldberger's free speech and all his other jazz didn't mean a thing to me. I, he was a Jew. And he was he was contributing to their success. For his part, Goldberger says representing Colin took a personal toll. Many of the survivors and the people in Skokie who opposed Colin going, they reminded me of my relatives. I understood why they were feeling the way that they did. And it doesn't feel good to be... Um, perceived as such a villain by people who you basically uh, have share an identity with. The ACLU's reputation took a hit. Here was this supposedly liberal organization representing the neo-Nazis in Skokie. The organization lost nearly a third of its membership in the late 70s. After a year and three separate court cases, Frank Collin won the right to march in Skokie. There was talk of violence. Skokie residents planning to bring guns to the march, and there was concern for the mental health of the Holocaust survivors. So the U.S. Department of Justice helped find a compromise. The neo-Nazis would be allowed to demonstrate in Chicago after all, if they stayed out of Skokie. Both sides declared victory. Skokie had kept the Nazis out. And here's one of the neo-Nazis, dripping with sarcasm. When our rights were restored, we canceled the Skokie demonstration and spared all these poor Jews the horror of seeing the swastika. All we asked for was our right to free speech in neighborhoods where we were accepted. Neighborhoods where they were accepted. This brings us all the way back to our original question. Did Chicago have a Nazi neighborhood? But Alex's question was inspired by a deeper curiosity about hate groups and the relationship they have to the broader community. I'll get to whether it makes sense to call Market Park a Nazi neighborhood in a minute. But for a moment, 
let's consider the broader dilemma posed by the existence of neo-Nazis. It's still relevant. Today, the neo-Nazis' ideological cousins, the so-called white nationalists or identitarians, are out in the open. Take Richard Spencer, who coined the term alt-right. Remember his speech in which members of the audience responded with the stiff-armed Nazi salute? Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! That same white nationalist famously got punched in the face by a protester, prompting cheers, memes, criticism. So once again, we're asking, do hate groups have a right to free speech? How should a community respond to hate groups? Ignore them? Counter-protests? Punch them in the face? So when one asks the question, which you did, do they have a right to express their views even if they're abhorrent? The answer is yes. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, he demonstrated against the neo-Nazis in the 1970s as a teenager. And he could actually have some say in whether a hate group gets a permit. But we have a responsibility for those of us that disagree to confront that hatred. And I think that confrontation and exposure, we will win uh, people's hearts and minds. Their, their language, their views, even in the worst of moments, does not speak to who we are on a fundamental level. One way of, of phrasing the question is, how should that confrontation take place? Another way in the modern <laughs> parlance is, is it okay to punch a Nazi? Uh, so uh, the confrontation is a battle of ideas and a battle of uh, justice. I, I don't think you have the right to physically assault uh, a neo-Nazi, no matter how much I may wa- agree with it. Personally, you don't have a right to do that. But it wasn't violent confrontation or nonviolent confrontation that defeated the Chicago neo-Nazis. In 1978, after they won their court case against Skokie, Frank Collins' group kind of defeated themselves. First, a rival from a Nazi group in Washington, D.C. exposed Colin as a Jew, which it turns out his father was Jewish. He immigrated to the U.S. as Max Simon Cohen, a survivor of the Dachau concentration camp. Then, in 1980, members of the Chicago group apparently tipped the police to Colin's stash of child pornography, and Colin was arrested for taking indecent liberties with children. He went to prison for five years, and his group faded away. Since then, neo-Nazis in Chicago haven't managed to get that kind of attention or inspire that kind of anger and fear. Back to the question of the Nazi neighborhood. I think one of the reasons the neo-Nazis were so successful in Chicago was their relationship to their neighborhood, Marquette Park. Consider, in 1978, just after the Skokie affair, Rahm Emanuel went to a neo-Nazi rally in Marquette Park. His group of counter-protesters were cordoned off by the police. We were led into an unbelievably hostile circle where people were jeering us, throwing things at us, and... uh, there was no co- physical confrontation, but you, didn't, you did feel physically uh, threatened. Because I remember a lot of guys in white T-shirts, a lot of guys just screaming at us. You know, things like, you dirty little Jew, uh, go back to where you came from, etc. You can see this in a documentary. Those people screaming at the 18-year-old Rahm Emanuel were not the neo-Nazis. There's evidence they're just people who live in Marquette Park or nearby. Some of them say things like, this is our neighborhood. 
There's other footage from 1976, which shows neo-Nazi Frank Collin blustering about resisting integration. This is our community. This is our neighborhood. We're not going to let any rabble of jungle primitives come in here and think that they can force us out. In the film, a middle-aged white man from the neighborhood comes into Rockwell Hall to put money into a cash jar and shake Collins' hand. Well, the best thing I can say for you, Frank, you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate it. This was only 30 years after World War II. People in the neighborhood had fought against Nazi Germany. Some had died. And not everybody in Marquette Park was okay with the neo-Nazis. There's footage of local people denouncing them, even arguing with them. So 40 years later, it's hard to know. Was Marquette Park a, quote, Nazi neighborhood? Did most of the people in the neighborhood support the neo-Nazis? Were people ambivalent? Unsure? It's worth thinking about the sign Larry Langford remembers on the wall of Rockwell Hall the one with the racial slur. And I believe it said, beware niggers. Langford's memory is almost correct. I found a photo, and that message actually began with the words, stop the, as in stop them from taking our neighborhood. You could see it all the way down the block. That sign was there for years in the 70s. At the time, several nearby majority white neighborhoods were rapidly desegregating. Marquette Park was one of the last, a holdout. And if enough people there wanted, they could have evicted Frank Collin and the neo-Nazis. But they didn't. I spoke to a lot of people familiar with Marquette Park in the 70s. They all told me people there may have thought the neo-Nazis were weird, maybe extreme. But resistance to integration? That was widespread. And so they allowed the neo-Nazis a home base. That was helpful. They could recruit followers, print flyers, organize rallies, raise money without fear of disruption. Without that space, Frank Collin and his neo-Nazis may not have had the opportunity to terrorize Skokie and the rest of Chicago. Reporting for this story came from me, Jesse Dukes. Maggie Civet and Catherine Nagasawa helped quite a bit with research. Special thanks to the Illinois Holocaust Museum for archival material. Support comes from the Conant Family Foundation. Next time on Curious City. So let's say you're at O'Hare and your flight gets canceled or delayed for like six hours. What happens to the hundreds of meals already loaded onto the plane? I assume that some of it is frozen, and I would imagine that maybe some of it was donated to food banks. But is that really what happens to the hundreds of thousands of meals that never meet their passengers at O'Hare? Or does it all get wasted? Find out next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.